Hello. And welcome to Sound of Time, episode two. I'm sorry about the delay, and I'm sorry about all the Brazilian names I'm going to butcher. If you like the podcast, please tell a friend to tell a friend. Follow me on Twitter at Sounds of Time Pod. Go to Sounds of Time Podcast.com. There you'll find sources and playlists curated by me. Now let's get started. December 27th, 1968, and it's summertime in Brazil. A young, thin-faced bohemian stands beneath a tuft of unwieldy curls in a posh Sao Paulo apartment living room. And he's surrounded by the police. He's half asleep and disoriented. His heart is racing. Police violence is ramped up, so he tries not to antagonize them. He politely asks why they're arresting him, but they give no clear reason. They just tell him to bring his toothbrush. Outside, an unmarked van idles. They keep asking about Gilberto, his closest friend and collaborator. He was used to the hostilities of the left, who often criticize him for being too alienated and Americanized. But what does the government want with two entertainers? He hadn't yet put it together, but the Government Institutional Act Number no. 5, or AI-5, was just signed a few weeks before. It gave the authoritative government in power the ability to arrest anyone and everyone it viewed as a political dissident, and thanks to the performances and demonstrations on their television show, Divino Maravilloso, the government had begun to take notice of he and his friends. This bohemian's name is Caetano Veloso, a singer-songwriter from Bahia. He and Gilberto Gil are the central figures behind the tropicalismo movement that the government so badly wants to shut down. And they are now political prisoners. Un, dos, tres. So on this episode of Sounds of Time, we're going to talk about a U.S.-backed coup d'etat, an opposing Marxist student movement, and an exile from paradise. We're going to talk about Tropicalia. Brazil is considered the other melting pot of the Americas. Several key elements of Brazilian history mirror those of the U.S. A kind of funhouse mirror reflection of the U.S. set against the backdrop of a tropical paradise. 
At the dawn of the 16th century, just a handful of years after Columbus' famous voyage, Captain Pedro Alvarez Cabral led a Portuguese fleet intent on reaching India for spice trade. They came across a new land and anchored at what would eventually become Porto Seguro in the northeast corner of Brazil. There they encountered an indigenous people they generically labeled as, you guessed it, Indians. Cabral spent the next several days meeting with indigenous tribesmen, stockpiling water and food, and erecting an altar for Sunday Mass. He sent a ship back to Portugal to return word of the discovery to the king. He gave the natives gifts and left with the remainder of his fleet to continue their journey to India. The natives weren't clad in gold, like the Aztecs would be when Cortes would begin his conquest of Mexico just a few decades later. So colonization wouldn't occur for another few decades. In fact, the only immediately recognizable and plentiful resource was the Brazilwood tree, a tree used to make a deep red dye for textiles. These trees would ultimately give the land its name. Decades later, Portugal sectioned off the coastline for wealthy settlers who were looking to take a chance and profit in this new world. Innumerable plantations were built, and Portugal, a nation with a population of only about a million, would never be able to send the emigrants necessary for the labor they required. So plantation owners looked to slavery, and Portugal was no stranger to slavery. During this period, one in ten of Lisbon's population was a slave, mostly from North Africa. At first, the plantation owners tried to enslave the indigenous people, but hundreds of thousands died from European diseases, such as smallpox, measles, and the common cold. In just under a hundred years, a population of four million Indians was pretty much halved by disease. By 1600, an alternative labor force was required. Portuguese colonists turned to Southwest Africa and the recently Portugal conquered Angola. This began the largest forced migration in history. Between 1600 and 1866, it is estimated that over 4 million slaves were brought to Brazil from Africa. While the U.S. crop of choice among slave-owning plantations was cotton, for Brazilian plantations, nicknamed engenhos, or little engines, the preferred crop was sugar. In a world without refrigeration, anything that could mask the taste of rotting food could and was worth its weight in gold, and sugar was Brazilian gold. This profitability would lead to Brazil becoming the world's leading sugar producer for the next few hundred years. It's important to start with Brazil's history of slavery because it is integral to the development of this melting pot culture. And ultimately, a lot of the things that first come to mind when thinking of Brazil are things rooted in African culture. Since slavery began much earlier in Brazil and was allowed to continue for much longer, it wasn't abolished until 1888. The African influence is more reinforced and fresher to the Brazilian experience. 
the music, dance, and religion of Brazil all have African roots embedded within. Take, for example, the practice of capoeira, a martial art slaves had to disguise as ritualistic dancing, or candomblé, a blend of traditional African religion, indigenous practices, and the Roman Catholic teachings of the Portuguese colonists, and samba. Samba is a music and dance form that, although hard to trace to one specific influence, is considered by most to be based on the Lundu rhythm and dance of the Bantu people from Africa. Candomblé faithful would gather in a circle after ceremonies, a hoda in Portuguese, dancing to the syncopated African rhythms. This brings us to Bahia, home of the Samba de Hoda. Bahia State is located at the northeast corner of Brazil, where Cabral first came ashore. And because of its ports and location in relation to Southwest Africa, Bahia is the Afro-Brazilian epicenter of the country. It was here, in the state capital Salvador, where our tropicalismo journey really begins. The group that came to be known as the Grupo Bahia came to be here in Salvador at the Universidade Federal de Bahia. In 1960, Caetano Veloso's parents sent him and his sister to Salvador to finish schooling as their hometown of Santo Amaro didn't have the advanced secondary classes. In this interview with NPR, Caetano recounts the first time he saw Gilberto Gil. In fact, I saw Gil for the first time on TV. He, I was at home with my family, and uh, in the afternoon, then on TV, this guy appeared playing guitar, and he could play all the chords the bossa nova geniuses used to invent or use. And, uh, and I was amazed, and I liked his face too, his smile and everything, his musicianship, and his personality. So a few days later, I was introduced to him by a friend of ours, because I was walking down a street in Salvador, Bahia, and he came with Gilberto Gil. And he introduced us, and we immediately became friends. Gil, along with Caetano and his sister, Maria Betania, and their friend, Gal Costa, spent time together soaking up the Bahian art scene particularly the films of Glauber Rocha and the flourishing Bossa Nova music scene. Pioneered by fellow Bahian Joel Gilberto, Bossa Nova was a breath of fresh air, both innovating and modernizing Brazilian music like never before. And we had the Bossa Nova movement you know, that came with innovation, you know, harmonical innovation, melodical innovation, and lyrical innovation too. I mean, the composers, they, they started doing, writing songs about different things, uh, recycling uh, the whole old-fashioned ways of, of doing music and introducing that, that new thing. 
todo mundo me pergunta Por que ando triste assim Ninguém sabe o que é que eu sinto Com você longe de mim Vejo o sol quando ele sai Vejo a In 1964, while Caetano was on summer vacation, staying with a friend in Iguape, he was overtaken with the sudden urge to go back to Salvador and be with his sister Maria Betania. On the road to Salvador, he convinced himself that he was being irrational, delusional even. So he stopped in his hometown of Santo Amaro and dispatched his ride, conceding to stay in town to visit with family. Shortly after, Betania arrived saying she decided to come to Santo Amaro on a whim, not unlike Gaetano's. As fate would have it, a phone call came that night. Opiniel, the hit musical stage show in Rio de Janeiro, wanted Maria Batania to replace one of its stars, Nara Leal. Nara herself had made the recommendation, becoming friends with the group after attending their shows in Salvador at the Villa Velha Theater. The very next day, Fulfilling a promise to his father to always look after his sister, Caetano accompanied her to Rio. Opinial was a theater show in which cast members alternated between musical performances and monologues or recitations of passages from literature. Carcara was already the climax of the show. But with her flair for the dramatic, Batania seemed to give it new life. The song describes the violent nature of the Carcara, a hawk common to the northeastern region. The bird of prey serves as a metaphor for the rural peasants who have to struggle just to survive. Originally sung by Nara Leao, a true Rio girl, it took on a powerful new meaning when sung by Maria Batania, with her curly hair and northeastern features. Carcara became an intentionally vague but compelling symbol for insurrection during a time of political unrest. And just like that, Maria Batania was a star, seemingly overnight. In Rio, Caetano continued to work as a songwriter and composer for various stage shows. During this period, he met Rogério Duprat, a composer who would become one of his closest friends and who would score a lot of the Tropicalista's future compositions. Opinial would eventually move from the culturally rich and diverse Rio to the industrial metropolis of Sao Paulo. In Sao Paulo, Catano grew artistically frustrated and longed to return home to Bahia. He convinced his father that Maria Batania no longer needed his watchful eye, and he made his way back to Salvador. For the next few years, he would bounce around between Salvador and Rio, cultivating the philosophy of what would become the basis for the Tropicalismo movement. He was intrigued by the work of Oswald Gienjraj, and his Manifesto Antropofago, also known as the Cannibalist Manifesto. 
The manifesto has often been interpreted as an argument that Brazil's history of so-called cannibalizing other cultures is its greatest strength. The title plays upon modernist fetishization of cannibalism as an alleged tribal right. This cannibalism becomes a way for Brazil to independently assert itself against European post-colonial cultural domination. Gilberto Gil, newly fascinated with the Beatles' Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club band, also knew he wanted to do something that would open Brazilians' minds and change the way they listen to music. He was already making headway in the rising Musica Popular Brasileira movement, also known as MPB. MPB was a loosely defined scene of post-Bossa Nova urban music. The movement sought to continue the pushing forward of Brazilian music that Bossa Nova had started. Meanwhile, a producer named Guilherme Arujo had become enamored with Maria Betania's talent. At this point, both she and Gilberto's careers were beginning to take off. And after meeting her friends, Guilherme immediately recognized the potential star power of the Bahian group as a whole. Now under competent management, this would lead to the recording of 1967's Domingo, a joint effort between Caetano and Gal. Roda toda gente roda ao redor dessa tarde essa praça é formosa. While not considered a Tropicalia project, more of a neo bossa nova album, it nonetheless garnered attention for the two Bahianos yet to be stars. Rosa não espera por mim. Rosa menina pousada não espera por nada, não espera por mim. During this time, television as a popular medium was relatively new to Brazil. The country had hitched itself to the television broadcast wagon quickly in the 1950s. The ruling dictatorship saw the potential value in controlled messaging. But it was an expensive technology, and throughout history, there has always been great disparity between the rich and the poor in Brazil. By the mid-1960s, though, televisions were in more homes than ever before. Some of the most popular programs were televised music festivals, presented in a contest format. Ah, uh, the festivals. Yeah. Oh, yes. Yes, we, we... At the time, they started, you know, showing contest bringing different composers and, and new singers, you know, to interpret. It was at one of these festivals in 1967, on the television station TV Record, that Caetano and Gilberto felt it was time to unleash what they called their universal sound upon the world. Caetano chose to perform Alegria, Alegria. Within Brazil, he would become best known for this song. But before he could even begin the song, Controversy was already brewing in the crowd. The band he chose to back him was an Argentine group, obsessed with the Beatles called the Beat Boys. It was noticed that this foreign rock band held electric instruments, which caused the crowd to boo. That was a scandal, yes. Just because we, we came with uh, each one of us with a different rock band, 
and uh, and the songs we wrote were more like rock friendly, <laughs> mm. and uh, the audience was not rock friendly at all. Something uh, similar to what happened to Bob Dylan in in the States when he appeared, you know, playing electric guitars with with the band yeah, and other yeah. groups. I mean, reaction against him that was considered as a folk purist or something like that, you know, was a kind of a scandalous for some audiences in the States. Caetano came out in his borrowed brown checkered suit and bright orange turtleneck, a stark contrast to the tuxedos that were custom for such an event. However, as the song began, Caetano's demeanor and the fact that the song is, well, good, turned the crowd in his favor. I know you've probably noticed that in this clip the crowd is not booing, rather, they're singing along. The only archive footage I could find was of the song's second performance at the festival. In the next round of the contest, the very next night, Gilberto Gil, by this time a well-known MPB artist, had also chosen to be accompanied by a rock band. This was a decision that brought him great distress. In Caetano's autobiography, Tropical Truth, the singer recounts Gil not being able to sleep the night before the performance, fearing for his career and the backlash he would face. Perhaps the crowd had been acclimated to the sight of rock musicians by the performance the night before, or perhaps it's because what would transpire that night would be a historically important performance of one of Brazil's greatest songs. Whatever it was, the crowd didn't boo, and Gil gave no indication of his anxiety. The song was Domingo no Parque, a traditional capoeira-style song fused with the aggressiveness of rock and roll, all enraptured by an orchestral arrangement by Rogério Duprat. Oh, 
bujos é como sempre no fim da semana Guardou a barraca e sumiu Foi fazer no domingo um passeio no parque Tá perto da boca do rio Foi no parque que ele avistou Juliana! The rock group he had chosen to back him was the Sao Paulo band Os Mutantes. And while the Beat Boys were merely paying homage to the Beatles, Gil thought Os Mutantes embodied the same creative spirit of the British band. The band was made up of two teenage brothers, Arnaldo Baptista and Sergio Diaz Baptista, along with their friend Rita Lee. Gilles was so impressed with the creativity and psychedelic avant-garde style of the teenagers that he brought them into the Bahian group's inner circle. They would go on to help record his second self-titled album the very next year. With the addition of the musician Tom Zé and poet Torcato Neto, the ever-expanding group of friends came together to record a collaborative album. They called it Tropicalia, Upanis et Circensis, and it was the manifesto on record for the movement. Arranged by Rogerio Duprat and almost exclusively written by Veloso and Gilles, the music criticized the government with irony and wit. The lyrics were often so ironic that the government censorship boards usually didn't catch them as being critical. The name of the movement itself, Tropicalia, was lifted from an art installation by Helia Oichisica, and it evokes the imagery of Brazil with its innate tropical beauty, juxtaposed against the brutal military power in place. This is the title track and album opener by Os Mutantes, and it's very reminiscent of the psychedelic pop of Sgt. Pepper's, as was the album's cover portrait. Inspired by Oswald de Andrade's Cannibalist Manifesto, Tropicalia sonically cannibalized aspects of everything from traditional Brazilian sambas and capoeiras to the organs and harmonies of American and British psychedelic rock. demonstrations that greeted the now deposed Brazilian president at Miami airport when he was en route to take office in 1961 show the deep distrust that has finally led to his downfall and exile in Uruguay. Groups had to be called out in Brasilia to quell the bitter protests of thousands against the notoriously left-leaning Juan Goulart's taking office. But as elected vice president under Janio Quadros, he legally succeeded him. A Russian trade show in Rio de Janeiro gave President Goulart, who paradoxically is a millionaire rancher, 
a chance to hobnob with some of his Soviet heroes. But it was his sympathies with nearer at hand Fidel Castro that the Brazilians really feared. Riotings against Goulart were frequent, yet when the end of his regime came, it was through a brief and bloodless military coup. What his successors can do with the almost totally wrecked economy he leaves behind him is a matter of concern to the entire Western Hemisphere. In the early 1960s, the Cold War was in full swing. Rattled by the Cuban Revolution and Fidel Castro bringing communism to the Western Hemisphere, the United States kept a watchful eye on South America. Brazil's political turmoil during the first half of the 20th century is long and convoluted. Plagued by a series of revolutions, military coups, and even a full-blown dictatorship, unfortunately, this is something that continues in Brazil to this day. In 1961, Janio Quadros, the democratically elected president, resigned his first year in office. This was a mismanaged political stunt he thought would win him favor amongst the people. Then the government prevented his democratically elected, but politically antithetical vice president, Joao Goulart, from taking over. Brazil then switched to a parliamentary system, before switching back to a presidential system with Goulart in power. The military and right-wing sectors of the government disagreed with Goulart's proposed policies and saw them as steps towards socialism. John F. Kennedy, too, believed Goulart was getting too friendly with anti-American radicals in the Brazilian government. And so, the United States enacted Operation Brother Sam, which was the code name given to JFK's plan to prevent Brazil from, quote, becoming another China or Cuba. This, in effect, lent support to the military in the 1964 coup d'etat that left Goulart exiled and the military in charge for over two decades. And that brings us forward to 1968. Although Veloso and Gilles' festival performances had been met with rapturous applause, tropicalismo had become a deeply divisive issue amongst Brazil's youth, with Marxist-influenced student groups condemning the movement because they believed it both commercialized and bastardized Brazilian traditional music by incorporating musical influence from other cultures, specifically the United States, whom the left loathed because of its role in the coup. Having tired of the sanctimonious left, the tropicalistas turned away from the role of conventional MPB musicians to something altogether different. Tropicalia had no allegiances. It plundered and mixed styles from wherever, reworking music from Brazil, America, Europe, whether it was in fashion with the left or not. They were just as opposed to the military dictatorship as any of their contemporaries, but they preferred confrontation. The fact that we were under a dictatorship taught us what violence really meant. And the violent aspect of rock and roll interested us 
more because we were seeing violence. And we thought that the artistical, aesthetical reaction our colleagues were presenting was too passive. You know, they were outspokenly left-wing and, and they were nationalistic and uh, they wanted to defend our traditions and everything. But they were not uh, responding to the violent tone of things that were happening in Brazil back then. So we, uh, we changed our way of composing and singing and playing partly because of that, because of the experience of violence. This confrontational approach would all come to a head at a festival in 1968. Having discovered Hendrix and Ayahuasca, Veloso, his hair grown out to long rebellious curls, wore an intricate costume of green plastic with electrical wires and chains adorned with animal teeth. Os Mutantes backed him in sci-fi outfits of their own. He moved his hips in a sexually provocative manner he himself likened to the way of a Bahian woman dancing samba. The song was E Prohibido Prohibir. It is forbidden to forbid. He wrote it after he saw the phrase in a magazine article about the 1968 student protests in Paris. His display drew jeers and boos, which he had come to expect on occasion. The audience began to turn their backs toward the stage. The band replied by turning their backs towards the audience. They were pelted with projectiles launched from the crowd, and Caetano had had enough. In his now infamous rant, he admonishes the crowd for their close-minded conservatism. So this is the kind of youth that says it wants to take power? You have the courage to applaud a song this year, the same kind of song that you didn't dare to applaud last year. You are the same youth that will always kill tomorrow, the same old enemy that died yesterday. You understand nothing, 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 absolutely nothing. You don't get it. You're not going to win. What kind of youth is this? If you're the same in politics as you are in aesthetics, then we are done for. In a display of solidarity, Gilberto Gil came on stage and the group left arm in arm. Still, the musicians had widespread acclaim. And near the end of 1968, they were contracted for their own television program, which they called Divino Maravilloso, or Divine Marvelous. The whole Tropicalismo group were brought on as regular guests for increasingly provocative and outrageous performances, some of which included having artists sing from cages, a reenactment of The Last Supper, where everyone ate bananas, and a mock funeral for Tropicalismo itself. That December, the government forced the signing of Institutional Act No. 5, or AI-5, which suspended habeas corpus and allowed the government to arrest, torture, and kill at their own discretion.
AI5 was seen as a direct response to the increasingly frequent protests and demonstrations by student groups. A rumor was floating around the TV station that both Caetano and Gilberto's names were on a list of artists to be interrogated. They thought maybe to ask about the March of 100,000. One of such protests in which the group took part earlier in the year and were photographed at. The march itself was a response to the death of Edson Luis, a student who was shot in the chest by police during a demonstration at a university cafeteria, which was meant to protest the rising costs of meals. This type of incident was becoming more common during an increasingly violent year between student groups and the military police. When the police did arrive on their doorstep, it wasn't for just an interrogation. They were arrested and jailed for two months without any reason given. After two months, they were brought back to Salvador, where they were freed on the condition that they wouldn't leave the city. For the next four months, the two, with Hagerio Duprat, recorded Catano's album Branco, or White Album, another Beatles-inspired move. They would write and record guitar and vocals in the small studio they had access to. They would then send them to Hagerio, who would layer orchestral arrangements around the tracks. They weren't allowed to play concerts in support of the album, and soon found themselves struggling to support their families. After begging the chief of police to grant them a work permit, he allowed them to play a concert to raise money to leave the country. As the rest of the world watched the moon landings in July 1969, Veloso and Gil were preparing to leave their home of Brazil. They had sent their manager Guilherme to Europe to find out where they could go. He had also been exiled for trying to stage a protest for their arrest. Lisbon and Madrid were out of the question, as Portugal and Spain were under a heavy dictatorship. Paris had a boring music scene. So they decided London was the best place for a musician to be. Gilles and Veloso, their manager and their wives, moved into a house in Chelsea, London. They arrived the week the Beatles released Abbey Road in late September 1969. The Brazilians became exotic fixtures of London's underground scene. Led Zeppelin, Tyrannosaurus Rex, Pink Floyd, The Who, Jimi Hendrix, and The Rolling Stones, Caetano soaked it all in. Gilberto Gil did as well, but after prison he was a changed man. He got into Eastern mysticism and stopped eating meat. And he fit right in with the hippies. But reggae became the most enduring legacy of his time in Europe. This was the period that saw Caribbean culture explode in London. With music from the likes of Bob Marley and Jimmy Cliff, he became fascinated by Rastafarian culture. He would internalize these ideas, bringing them back to Brazil and engaging with Afro-Brazilian politics, and holding several different political positions in the time since, including serving as Brazil's Minister of Culture. The time in London saw the Bahians grow immensely as artists. 
They each recorded a few albums and even played the second day of the famous Isle of Wight Festival in 1970. I'd just like to explain to you that these good people that are coming on stage are from Brazil. And one of the reasons they're here is because politics doesn't allow them to do their thing in Brazil. One thing's for sure they can do it here. Despite this growth, they always long to return home. And they did. In 1972, they returned to Bahia, although they were not fully granted amnesty until 1979. The government re-democratized seven years later, in 1985, and in all, from the TV Record Festival in 1967, to the mock funeral of Divino Maravilloso, to the arrest and exile, Tropicalia lasted about a year. And if I'm being entirely honest, most of my favorite music from these artists comes in the 70s. But its impact is indisputable. It broke conventions and laid the groundwork for all Brazilian music to come after. It both modernized and innovated Brazilian music, all while keeping intact that intangible and indescribable quality that makes it of Brazil. It was a matter of expression, of free speech, of conviction, and they didn't give a damn who they pissed off. Today, Caetano and Gilberto are Brazilian music luminaries, who not only still tour, but they also keep the open minds that led them to be so groundbreaking in the first place. Yeah, I listen to, I listen to Kanye West and wow. <laughs> James Blake. Thank God for Beatlemania. It was 20 years ago today. Sergeant Pepper taught the band to play. And thank you for listening to Sounds of Time, Episode 2. Follow me on Twitter at Sounds of Time Pod. Or visit Sounds of Time Podcast.com, where you can find sources and a playlist curated by me. If you like the podcast, please tell a friend to tell a friend or rate and review us on whatever platform you use. Next episode, we will be talking about Narco Corridos. Thanks for listening. Sergeant Pepper's lonely, Sergeant Pepper's lonely, Sergeant Pepper's lonely, her's glad.